Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. A few weeks ago, I was watching this movie called The Book of Daniel, and it's a fairly low-budget movie, but it has pretty good accuracy as far as the flow of events within uh, the story of Daniel's life and the book of Daniel in the Bible. But as I was watching it, even though it was you know, not the greatest movie, not something I'd probably want to watch too many times after that, uh, something was said in it that I've read over a hundred times, but when I watched it, watched a person speaking the words, something kind of clicked in my mind. And I think this happens a lot where we kind of forget, even though we might have read it a bunch of times, we forget that the Bible has accounts of people in it. It does tell what happened in that person's life, but sometimes it takes something else, like a movie or just a different mindset to not just accept that certain things happened, but to really understand that what is recorded is people making decisions, choosing what to say, what to think, how to react to certain situations. And sometimes because we accept that it's already happened, we don't stop to question the people in their actions or words or thoughts behind any of those things. We just kind of take for granted that it happened because we now know that it happened and then we move on from that. But for me, at this time, seeing this actor or this person speaking the words of Daniel forced me to go back to the text and read the book of Daniel from the point of view of a person. And when I did that, I was struck with the same feeling as when I watched the movie and I saw Daniel, the character Daniel, saying these words. And they're recorded in Daniel 6, starting in verse 21. This is Daniel talking to King Darius of the Persian Empire. And if you're not familiar with the book of Daniel and you're not sure when he said this or uh, in what context he was saying this, we will go through that just a little bit in a second. But I want to just read verse 21 first. It says, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. And this is the phrase that struck me so profoundly at this time when I watched a person saying this to another person, realizing exactly who these two people are in relation to each other. O king, live forever, a proclamation of authority and rulership over himself, and then a declaration of wishing that that king would live forever. And if you continue reading in verse 22, it gives us the context. It says, My God sent his angel and shut up the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. So Daniel says this to a man who had overthrown the place that took him captive and then continued to keep him captive. To a man who just upheld his decree to throw him into a den of lions for praying to God. To someone who didn't believe like he did and worshipped pagan gods. To someone who probably didn't rule the way that Daniel thought rulership should conduct itself. Uh, himself coming from Judah and you know experiencing a different type of government. He was not on the same side as Daniel by any means. And yet Daniel says this phrase to him. So I initially was struck, and then I thought, you know what, maybe I'm making too much of this. Maybe this is just a phrase. Maybe it's some offhanded thing you say to really anyone at the time. 
Um, but you only really ever heard this said to honor someone in the Bible. So I looked up a bunch of different verses, looked up the phrase itself to see where else it might occur. And it's only ever said to kings by their subjects. In 1 Kings one thirty one. Bathsheba said it to King David after he promised her that Solomon would rule after him. So this is uh, a proclamation of, again, rulership over herself and then a wish that he would live forever. But this is from someone who is pleased with the king. And then you have Daniel 3, 9 and Daniel 2, 4, where it's said to Nebuchadnezzar, but it's again by people who were loyal to him. And in those sections, it's people that wanted to be pleased by the king or wanted something from the king and wanted him to be pleased with them. But even so, this is a phrase of honor to a person in authority or in power. And I don't see Daniel as someone who is pretentious or doesn't say exactly what he means. In plenty of other instances, we see Daniel unafraid to say exactly what needs said, even though it could get him in trouble. And he even shows a little bit of trepidation sometimes at what he's about to say. So he he seems like a very purposeful person, not something that would just say things just to say them or because everyone else is saying them. He seems to know exactly what he's saying, and, and he's very intentional with the words he speaks. Well, then I thought, maybe he had to say it. Maybe this was something decreed by King Darius that all his subjects had to say this to him. And Daniel saw this as a way to take the lesser of two evils uh, in favor of sparing his life. And uh, it could be something commanded. We see in Daniel 6.6, the governors and satraps say it uh, to Darius when they're trying to catch Daniel. So maybe this was just a a policy that uh, Darius had. But again, we see it said also to King David and King Nebuchadnezzar. So it can't just be one rulership's position that this must be said. But maybe it was custom. But again, I think it's clear from this account specifically that Daniel's main focus is not self-preservation. Not that I think he wanted to die, but he was much more concerned with doing the right thing. And if it were wrong for him to say this to the king, or wishing the king to live forever, I don't think he would have done it. So then, just to continue on with just a little bit of skepticism, because, you know, that is the world of apologetics. You're supposed to defend the faith, but you defend it and you prove it by first proving it to yourself and asking yourself questions about what it's saying in the text. And because I was struck by this phrase, O King, live forever, so quickly, I wanted to make sure I wasn't reading something into the text, and I wanted to ask myself questions from all around this one point to make sure I saw it accurately, and then also to make sure I presented it accurately. So I asked myself another question. I thought, well, maybe since Darius is from Persia, which was much more favorable to the Jewish people, Daniel probably knew their 70-year sentence in exile was at an end, so maybe he was just more happy with this king. Maybe he saw it as being much easier to give honor to this king as opposed to previous kings. So then I looked into that, and in Daniel 4.19, I think we'll see that that's absolutely not true. Uh, In Daniel 4.19, this is Daniel talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the very first king that Daniel has any dealings with throughout his time in Babylon. And in Daniel 4.19, the king has a dream, and this is actually the second dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that Daniel's going to interpret for him. But in 19, we'll see also some of Daniel's trepidation at saying the truth, I think. It says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. 
So this is like a go-ahead from Nebuchadnezzar. Like, I see that this is maybe not going to be the best news, but go ahead and tell me the truth. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. Now, this dream ended up dealing with Nebuchadnezzar's future bout with insanity uh, because he got too prideful and God wanted to show him that he, only through the grace of God did Nebuchadnezzar have anything uh, at all. It was not through his own power, but he was starting to get a big head about this. But here we see Daniel's difficulty in interpreting this dream in the sense that he doesn't want this to happen to the king. He has things that are positive to say towards even Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king who destroyed his home and probably some of his own family, destroyed the temple, which was their place of worship, uh, which was vastly important to day-to-day -day life. You can read in places like Psalm 137, where Jeremiah talks about the exile to Babylon, how they had to play songs to God outside of the temple and how difficult that was for them. Also in places like Ezra and Nehemiah, when they actually rebuild the temple, uh, all the old timers are incredibly upset because it doesn't match its former glory. And they're all crying and frustrated. This shows you the importance of the temple. So someone that destroyed that temple uh, is not exactly someone you would imagine Daniel wishing good things on. He also took him and his friends captive, stripped them of their identity, of their names. We see in this verse, he calls him Belteshazzar, which is a name giving honor to different gods than Daniel, specifically the god Bel. And it means Bel is the keeper of secrets, as opposed to Daniel, which honors God, the true God, and it means God is my judge. So completely stripped him of the importance of his name even and his identity, uh, immersed them in pagan society's culture, tried to get them to worship pagan gods even, which can be seen in the account with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are also their Babylonian names representing Babylonian gods and not Hebrew names. But it's funny that Daniel says, may this dream concern Nebuchadnezzar's enemies, when in a lot of regards, it would make sense for Daniel himself to be his enemy. And maybe Daniel did consider Nebuchadnezzar his enemy. I mean, he treated him well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't think of him as an enemy. All of this to me so clearly represents uh, an Old Testament version of what Jesus spoke in Matthew 5.43. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And this is Christ talking about the law in Leviticus 19.18. It commands the people of Israel saying, love your neighbor as yourself, which we see echoed by Jesus in the New Testament a number of times. But in Leviticus 19.18, if we'll read the whole verse, it says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now notice Jesus says, You have heard it said, not you have seen it written or you have read that it has said. It says, You have heard it said. This speaks to an oral tradition that was passed down, and that's exactly what we see here. The rabbis and scribes of the time came to see this as saying, that the children of your people are synonymous with your neighbor. 
because the first part says, don't bear a grudge, don't take vengeance against the children of your people. Then it says, but you shall love the neighbor as yourself. So there's kind of two ways to read this, and they read it the wrong way. They read it like, don't take vengeance or bear a grudge against each other, but love each other in the nation of Israel as yourself. This gave a lot of room to add the phrase, hate your enemies, especially when they see that they're commanded to go to war against people outside of Israel, like the Canaanites or the Amalekites. And over time, this hate your enemies teaching came to break down, including personal disputes as well, even within Israel. In effect, totally ignoring the first part of Leviticus 19 about not bearing grudges or taking vengeance. Um, In McLaren's Expositions Commentary, it says this, This was apparently a well-discussed question in the schools of the rabbis, and whether any of these teachers ever committed themselves to plainly formulating the principle or not. Practically, the duty of love was restricted to a narrow circle, and the rest of the wide world left out in the cold. But not only was the circumference of love circle drawn in, but to hate an enemy was elevated almost into a duty. And this is what Jesus is preaching against. Even when he says, you've heard it was said, he's not correcting what was written in the law. He's correcting what was spoken by the teachers who taught incorrectly from the law. It's even cool to me how uh, in Leviticus 19, it ends with, I am the Lord. And I always think of this as like an announcement of authority, a type of listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. But then in Matthew 5, when Jesus is expounding on Leviticus 19 and removing false teachings that came in over the years, he adds, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Meaning, therefore, essentially, if you do this, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Which isn't saying, listen to this because I know what I'm talking about. God's, it's, it's saying God doesn't tell you this and say, because I said so. He tells you this because he does so. And we're called to be more like him. To me, this is really cool. Uh, it kind of reminds me of my study of love, which you can find. I have different episodes going over 1 Corinthians 13. But it reminds me of, of love. As, as God loves, we're supposed to love because we're supposed to become more and more like him. Um, but that, as I digress, anyways. So back to Daniel. It isn't that you loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you means you have to approve of everything they do. It doesn't mean you can't directly oppose them. It doesn't mean you can't call out their wrongs. It doesn't mean you can't be angry with them. Uh, it, It doesn't mean any of this. Loving your enemies is loving them as you love yourself, wanting the best for them as if their success is your success, wanting good things for them because them benefiting is you benefiting, wanting them to do the right thing because it's pleasing to God that they do. And then also realizing that when you love someone like this, as God loves them, our God, who, who says he works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, we can benefit from their benefit. And this reminds me of so many different situations that after I saw this in the book of Daniel, where he says, O king, live forever, uh, and kind of blessing your enemies, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. It made me think of a few instances. Uh, one was in the Bible, the Samaritan woman who was at the well would have been an enemy to Jewish people. Jews and Samaritans did not get along at all. But instead, this woman proved to be a foothold for Jesus to preach in all of Samaria. So this person who was an enemy turned out to be a gateway into something amazing because Jesus loved her and didn't treat her like an enemy. 
And then an even more recent example from 1947, a Muslim shepherd boy ended up finding the Dead Sea Scrolls by throwing rocks into holes at Qumran. And that is considered one of the greatest finds in all of Christianity, uh, proving the accuracy of our texts. And really, in my opinion, showing us a modern day miracle in the fact that we have all of these texts so well preserved, even through time, despite human error, translation error, uh, we really have an accurate Bible that we read. And this was proven through the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, or at least supported by the Dead Sea Scrolls, found by a Muslim shepherd boy, someone who probably was not looking to benefit Christianity, someone who probably didn't even have Christianity on the radar at all in their minds. Um, maybe even thought of Christianity as the enemy, as often Christianity and Islam are, are pitted against each other, and yet Christianity as a whole owes a huge debt of gratitude to that boy. So we don't see Daniel loving Nebuchadnezzar by approving of his pagan worship of other gods or following along with it, like we see especially with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they're told they have to bow down and worship idols, their response to Nebuchadnezzar is, we have no need to answer you in this. It's kind of flippant and kind of... Uh, very bold, but we don't we don't see them approving of pagan worship or following along with with it. We don't see Daniel loving Darius by shrugging his shoulders when he's sentenced into the lion's den and saying, "Eh, well, it's the right thing to do." He does not equate evil action with goodness just because the king is in power. So for those of you that want to act like everything going on in the world is by God's grace because He must let whoever is in power in power for a reason, maybe that reason. Just just a thought, maybe that reason is to see what your response to that evil will be. Maybe you let evil into your own heart unintentionally because you think real evil doesn't look so nice, isn't so tempting, or doesn't come through political policies or world rulers, but really is just in a person's heart. And because you don't feel evil and you feel everyone else who disagrees with you is, then you must have the right heart. I would say just be careful. Be careful because we should not be equating evil action with goodness just because someone is in power. But on the flip side, for those of you that sit and seethe at the TV, anytime someone of a different political view shows their face, maybe you should think about why you're hating them. Is it because you don't like what they're doing or you don't like the policies or evil that might be done through them? That's not a wrong thing. But does it flow into hating the person themselves? I think a lot of times it does. Do you wish bad things on them? Or maybe you even wish they were dead. Or or instead, do you pray for them? Do you, maybe not to succeed in doing evil, but do you pray for their general well-being? Or for their success as God measures success? Or for them to enter into the kingdom of God one day and have their eyes open to truth and repent of any evil they've done so they can enjoy God's presence and be one with his people, including you, eternally, that's something to think about. I think a lot of us desperately need to know what the words, O King, live forever mean. It's not an unthinking, unfeeling support of all that a person in power can do. It's not a blindness to evil being done, and it doesn't seek to bless evil being done with long life. It wants that evil stopped for the sake of the individual person that should be loved. But it's also not a weak phrase meant to appease a king while keeping and holding on to the ability to hate them securely in your heart. It's a wish or a prayer for the person in our understanding to live forever, not in this life, 
but with eternal life in God's family by virtue of love for that person and a desire to see true good happen to and through them. After Daniel spoke the words of the dream to the king that would predict his coming insanity and was afraid for the king and possibly himself for delivering bad news and wished that the bad things would not come to him by speaking these kind words to him, he interpreted the dream as well and then he said this to conclude in Daniel 4.27, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Essentially what Daniel's saying here is, O king, I want your prosperity. I want good things to happen to you, but you are a sinner and you are unmerciful to the poor. So, repent of your sins, show mercy to the poor, and good things might happen because God is loving and merciful. And if we prayed for our enemies like this, if we petitioned our enemies like this, if we approached our enemies like this, I think they might stop being our enemies altogether. Because when we offer our time and our consideration through prayer to God for a person, it's hard for us to hate them because we are ascribing all we have in this world, which is our time, to that person. We are giving value in our own minds to that person. And when we do that, it's so much easier to think of them positively. When we make an effort to love them or show love to them, then we're loving them as ourselves. And so we begin to blur the lines of what is good for them and what is good for us. Because then what is good for them is good for us. A benefit to them is a benefit for us. God's blessing to them is a blessing to us. And these people stop becoming our enemies when we show them love. We have a duty to God and his goodness. And that means a rejection of sin, a complete intolerance of sin. But we also have a duty of godly love towards mankind from the greatest even to the least. So I think oftentimes we only get about half of this. We don't get both. But Daniel, I think, understood this and carried out his duties absolutely perfectly. And he did this by never being afraid to do what was right, even at the cost of his own life or even at the cost of standing up to the king, even at the cost of making it very clearly known that he was in direct opposition to the king at some given circumstance, and then even instructing the king himself to repent and do what was right in God's eyes. But he also did his duty by saying in love and meaning, I think fully with all of his heart, O king, live forever. I really hope this has been a benefit to you. Uh, No matter which side of the spectrum you fall on, I think all of us fall on one side or the other, including me. I hope that you can take this and not just hear the phrase, love your enemies, but see it put into practice by Daniel when he said to the kings, O king, live forever. So as always, until next time, continue to read your Bibles, continue to think critically about them, and continue to apply these truths that we learn to your lives. Have a great day, everybody.